Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, I'm doing great. This is so exciting. We have three scholars talking, which means this is going to be a 16-hour episode. <laughs> if only, if only. Right. If we said everything we wanted to say, it's gonna. that's how long it would be. About to say, I'm not looking forward to having to edit this thing. I already know it's going to not be within our normal bounds, and that's okay. I'm looking forward to the richness of the discussion that we are going to be having today. But uh, you heard Derek right. We got three of us on today. We are joined by Dr. Daniel McClellan, biblical scholar. Are you more of a, would you consider yourself more of a, a, a religious scholar or a theologian? Because I've seen you be kind of like both the times on your TikTok. Um, I will uh, I will bleed into theology uh, a mm-hmm. bit, but I would probably say more biblical scholar. Uh, got you, got you. So we are very uh, happy and excited to have him on because, um, you know, your boy Dan has been blowing up the world of TikTok, of uh, Bible scholar TikTok. If, I didn't even know that was uh, such a thing, but uh, he is doing some grand work there. Uh, definitely want to follow him. Can you drop your handle real quick on TikTok, Dan? Yeah, so I'm at McClellan, and this is a phonetic spelling of my last name. So it's M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. Yes. And that's, that's my handle across uh, Instagram as well as uh, YouTube and Twitter. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, one thing we really appreciate about uh, what Dan is doing is how accessible he is making biblical scholarship to the gen- general public and doing it on the medium of TikTok, which is pretty much where so much of our communication is going on. In fact, Dan is the reason that I knew there was such a thing as Mormon TikTok, ex-Mormon TikTok, <laughs> Bible TikTok, Christian TikTok, the- like theologian TikTok. Like there's all these little subgroups uh, for religious scholars and for Christians and other folks on TikTok. And uh, Dan has really carved a niche for himself. And again, making this information accessible in ways that, uh, quite frankly, should have been done a long time ago. So first of all, Dan, thanks for the work that you've been doing on that platform. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate hearing that. That was, I, I kind of had two goals when I first started there. I was seeing a lot of people share videos from TikTok on Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook and uh, there was a lot that was intersecting with, with uh, my area of expertise. And, I, and initially, my thinking was, is anybody keeping tabs on what's going on over there? Uh, <laughs> so I, I got an account to try to check it out. And it took a couple of days. And I was like, I don't think anyone is keeping tabs on what's going on over here. So I, I figured maybe I can um, help. Uh, stem the tide of misinformation because it is it can be phenomenally harmful in all kinds of directions when people uh, share misinformation. And then I also, uh, as I got going doing that, I was primarily responding to videos more than producing my own. I, I thought this might be a great opportunity to start to democratize um, scholarship as well, because this is a discussion that a lot of people have in, in graduate school and in the academy is What's the point of all this? Is this going to be, you know, how is this going to make its way into public discourse? Uh, and a lot of times we structure it so that it cannot, that it is siloed, that it yeah. is kept from the public discourse. And that's what perpetuates the sharing of misinformation. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I hopefully am still trying to kind of balance both of these aspects of it, democratizing scholarship. And I, and I have to work to try to, you know, weed out all these $3 words that I like to use. I still have people <laughs> telling me, I don't understand any of the words you said. I'm, I'm working on that, but hopefully I'm, I'm striking a good balance between 
democratizing the, the scholarship and the scholarly resources and theories while at the same time also uh, responding to that misinformation, which is still very, uh, very salient and very <laughs> damaging in a lot of ways, I think. I still think that's putting it a bit kindly. Like I said, um, <laughs> when I discovered uh, your account on TikTok, I, I saw what else was out there and I was like, oh, there are legitimately nobody. There's nobody. There's not a lot of people like Dan doing this work. And I don't even think within the scope of Mormon scholarship, we have anybody who has made the impact that you have in terms of being, for lack of a better word, some kind of proctor on, uh, you know, what's going on in our little corner of uh, TikTok. Now, I, I know that uh, the information that you share isn't exclusively for us as members of the church, but the fact that you are, you know, an LDS scholar, a biblical scholar is pretty huge because we don't have a lot of y'all out here. And, uh, you know, to have somebody like you doing the work that you are that you are doing, and like you said, democratizing the scholarship, getting away from that ivory tower and, uh, you know, hopefully using less of those $3 words, uh, you are doing something that is, uh, you know, not just, you know, in my opinion, fun, helpful, and informative, but uh, necessary. And... Um, that's uh that that that's not a small thing. Um, I mean, I I know you know it's not a small thing, but uh, I just want to make sure I communicate that I believe it's uh, not a small thing. So again, thank you for that work that you're doing, and also explaining what your goal was in the first place, and uh you know putting yourself out there and uh, letting letting your light shine. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I I got a couple of. Uh, other things, uh, or sorry, did you want to say anything else regarding your goals, um, regarding having a TikTok account or just <laughs> otherwise putting yourself out there in the manner that you've had so far? Uh, I think I think the, the one thing I would add is, is one of the rules, the only real ground rule that I set up when I started it was I've, I've been around the internet for a long time. I've discussed religious studies, Mormonism on the yeah. internet for a long time. I know how easily it can descend into toxic discourse. And so a ground rule I set up was I'm not here to talk about my personal beliefs. I am here to just talk about an academic approach <clears throat> to the Bible and or to the study of the Bible and of religion. And so every single day, I still get questions about, um, you know, what do you believe? How do you reconcile the scholarship and your faith? Uh, and, and I just keep that at arm's length. I don't address that. And I think that has been, it frustrates a lot of people, but at the same time, I think it is a reason that I have a, a broader appeal and people still see me as to the degree possible and, you know, unbiased source of information. There are people who are going to disagree with that, but mm -hmm. I try to approximate as close as I can, uh, being an unbiased source of information that's going to give the facts, the scholarship, my expert opinion without saying, now here's what I personally believe. And, and that's a, a difficult boundary to maintain, but uh, for the time being, um, that's uh, how I'm, I'm trying to curate uh, my participation. Well, that's well, going to lead to, sorry, Derek, uh, I just got one follow-up question of what you said. <laughs> um, with what I am currently learning in my uh, own study of the Bible, do you believe it's even possible to read a book like the Bible objectively? Um, purely objectively, I, I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's even possible to, to experience the world around us in a purely objective way. There are always going to be ways that our own experiences, interpretive lenses, biases, 
uh, are going to shade and color the way we perceive things. That's just an inevitability. Uh, and so I think if the more we can become aware of our biases and how they're influencing how we're reading and how we're engaging other people, I think the, the more we can work to dismantle them and the more we can work to move them out of the way, but that is always going to be an active part of any reading. Well, I don't think we can ever hope to just have pure access to what the authors intended. I don't think that's realistic. And for the record, I have seen Dan name his biases on his TikTok a couple of times. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that y'all knew that uh, coming from a biblical scholar that, uh, you know, this is this is basically unavoidable. And that's kind of part of the game of biblical scholarship. So thank you for letting me follow up, Brother Dan. Thank you. Sorry, Derek, so, you got some? <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to name the power dynamics behind some of these questions. Because and we get at this as queer people too, like people on the internet who don't know me and I don't know, I don't owe them anything, will say, Well, how do you rec reconcile your views <clears throat> with the scriptures? Or how do you reconcile your life with church membership? And there's a there's a power imbalance there because they claim that they own my time and like I should pause my best life now to meet their needs. Mm -hmm. And actually, it should go the other way. They should be figuring out how they can help meet my needs. And I think a similar thing is true in scholarship. When people think that you owe them an answer, that can be um, something to be named. Is It's not just a neutral act to ask someone for their time. And I, and I think a lot of people don't realize their own biases when they do that. Because I get that question a lot. And then immediately somebody will say, well, I don't know if I could trust you. And that is just a kind of poor rationalization. They desire this answer and that's how they are trying to make it sound like I owe it to them. Um, and because they're not thinking hard about their own biases and uh, yeah, I can imagine uh, there are all kinds of ways that uh, the different systemic power asymmetries can be ignored by people who deny they exist to begin with uh, and how they can just try to trample over uh, what others are trying to do with their lives and act like, uh, you know, they get to decide for everybody else. And that's problematic. And scholars can do that in, in ways as well. Um, and so being aware of that, uh, having those things bubble to the surface so we can acknowledge them and then you know, be aware that we need to treat that directly. I think those are important aspects of, of public discourse. And I want to name a distinction that a lot of people don't really flesh out and it's the difference between critical thinking skills and education and intelligence all three of those are very different and you can have a lot of intelligence and a lot of education and not really have developed your critical thinking skills you can yeah. also have a lot of intelligence and not a lot of education and that needs to be named too and i think in these conversations we've got um a lot of focus on education, which clearly you've got a lot of education and a lot of intelligence, but I also think it's quite unique almost that you're willing to front load your critical thinking skills. And that I think is the challenge that people aren't ready for in this conversation. Yeah. And, and I will acknowledge that is an ongoing challenge for me as well, because I have, I have people tell me every single day that I'm being biased in one way or another. And 
it's easy to say, no, I've already proved I'm, I'm not biased. But every time I get that, I try to, I'm not 100% successful, but I have to sit there and think, okay, is there truth to what they're saying? And, and I have to try to deconstruct my own perspectives on this. And there have been times where I've come back and said, okay, you're right. I was, I was wrong about this. Um, and that's, so I think that's not only do, uh, does everybody else, does everybody need to worry about um, the critical thinking, but it's something ongoing. We don't just overcome that. It's something that we every day will have to, to think about to one degree or another, or should think about, I think. Should, yes. And I think that's a challenge for many Latter-day Saint scholars. Here we go. <laughs> who have a lot of education and intelligence, and I'm not going to name their names, but they lack critical thinking skills and they are deliberately and unapologetically apologetic. That is, they name, like, I'm coming at this and I'm going to bias the evidence in favor of the historically received narrative of what the common people in the church think. I'm like, that is not okay. Um, it, well, it's good that they name that that's their bias, but they're like, I'm going to go with what the evidence should have said, or, or I'm going to ignore the, I'm going to make it come out in the most uh, heavy handed way. And the irony is the more intelligence and education you have, the more tools you have to make, make the argument come out the way you want. And I think that is really a challenge for listeners because if we're trying to democratize this, this field, the apologists are good at popularizing their stuff. And I think we who are on the side of science and facts and um, legitimate critical scholarship, we've got an uphill battle on this. Yeah, one of the one of the things I talk about a lot is identity politics, how a lot of our thinking, our cognition is guided by what we're trying to get out of things for ourselves, out of debates, out of relationships, out of social identities, how we're trying to advance our own interests. And that can be very, very subtly pushing us in certain directions. And a lot of times we, may, we craft arguments in the service of those identity politics because we're not thinking critically. We let that guard down. And, that's, and in apologetics, that's particularly true because it's, it's so much more openly aimed at a specific conclusion before the work even begins. And, and so, yeah, I think that's, um, that's an issue. That's a, that's a big problem. And that's why one of the reasons I've, uh, I get uh, called an apologist an awful lot online. And it always, I'm, it baffles me every Ow. time. People okay. are like, you're just a Mormon apologist. Like, have you seen my yeah. videos? Have you met me? Um, so I, I, I don't no. understand that. Yeah, neither do I. Um, I like it. I, I don't know if I named this, but like, I just really like your approach. And, you know, I've seen some of the videos that you have done responding to people who are, you know, in some cases critical of, uh, you know, something in our theology or our doctrine or our history. And uh, you have conceded those, uh, you've conceded those things. And I'm just like, this is what we need more of. Like, I want to see yeah. more members of the church openly acknowledging that some of this stuff you know, is true or that some of this stuff that has happened in the past is not okay. And that we got, you know, we got to address that just like, and sometimes you say something no more than I don't have an argument for that, or I don't have a case to make against that. And I'm just like, 
Okay, that's a man who is confident in his field of study. That's a man who's confident in this work and what he's got to say. It's just, I, it baffles me too, is what I'm trying to say, Dan. And, um, you know, I even though I am going to still name that just by virtue of our social locations and by, you know, the, the phase that we have chosen to live, um, that bias is always going to exist. But... I like that you have named that bias or that you have conceded when people who have worldviews or ideas or just facts that somehow might endanger or might compromise your position are not things you are going to like argue against or things that you are just going to simply concede. Like, I think that's important. And uh, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's always a fair criticism, or at least when I've seen that criticism on your page, it is more often than not been an unfair one, in my opinion just to name that and my own bias. And, and I think there's a, there's a degree to which people who, who aren't willing to do that, I can understand why. Certainly. Because you, you don't really get a second chance right, right. for a lot of folks. If you come back and say, you know, if someone, uh, you know, you make a claim and somebody makes a good case that you are being biased or something like that. You, you've got to, they're, they're trying to protect themselves because if they say, mm-hmm. you're right, I was being unbiased. There are a lot of people who are like, that's it, done. I don't, you know, I'm not listening to you anymore. Mm-hmm. But nobody, nobody is truly, um, you know, undefeated. Right. Uh, everybody loses from time to time, makes mistakes from time to time. And so I would like to see a lot more people be able to say that, be able to say, I was wrong, I did this wrong, but also have the community then say, okay, let's move on. Let's, we're not going to dwell on this, but, but that's so rare. A lot of people are just scared that they're going to get, you know, not canceled, but at least that their audience is going to stop listening. And, and on social media, that's the last thing you want is to lose your audience. (laughs) Big time. Yeah. I think there's a number of delicate conversations that happen. We have to talk to um, faithful members of the church. We also have to talk to scholars outside the church, and we have to talk to uh, aggressive Christians of other faiths, uh, of other denominations. And all of those conversations are a little bit different. And so it's very interesting how you're handling and navigating these. I'm really interested a lot in what do we say to our own Latter-day Saints, because the people who are wanting to sort of attack Mormonism will look at you as an apologist, but people within Mormonism will look at you as, uh, as someone to be, uh, I don't know what they look, but it, they will probably not trust you as they would trust a general authority. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a suspicion <clears throat> that they will have on you because you are bringing new tools. Well, they're not new. They're new to Latter-day Saints, but we've had these tools since the enlightenment. And so that, that conversation is interesting, especially because we have uh, a very strong tradition, especially among uh, Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie of approaching the scriptures in a very specific way. And somehow due to their prominence, their methods have become artificially uh, predominant in the church. Like that wasn't the only way Latter-day Saints read the scriptures, mm-hmm. but Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie seem to look at the scriptures like a double column reference work, like those old timey phone books. Like, I don't know if people these days know what phone books are, but you need to look up a phone number. You, you, you go, you don't have to read the rest of the phone book to get the one answer you want. Mm-hmm. And they typically looked at the scriptures as a reference. You can go without any training or education and look up that one thing 
and it will tell you quite directly uh, and literally what's going on. And I think biblical literalism is uh, such a challenge in, in the history of our denomination. So what do you think about that? And, and how do you address this among believing Latter-day Saints? I can understand how it has gotten to be the way that it is. I think uh, with the rise of correlation and with the growth of the church, there's a degree to which we don't want to present the scriptures as this phenomenally complex thing that you have to dedicate your life to better grasping that you will never 100% fully grasp. I, I think that's unattractive for a lot of folks around the world. And so we, as we have grown and spread and have decided to correlate everything and make everything uh, agreeable with the institutional um, frameworks, I think we have uh, gravitated towards treating everything in, like you said, in this phone book kind of way with a lot of proof texting and a lot of um, suggesting there's one way to read this. At the same time, however, I recognize that there is a desire not to try to um, put too many guardrails on things because I know that a lot of leaders in the church, local leaders and centralized leaders want people to approach the scriptures as a, uh, a source of inspiration and revelation and guidance that is flexible, that is malleable, that is personable. And so I think we have two somewhat conflicting notions of scripture that we're trying to hold in tension to serve our own rhetorical goals. And, you know, in one context, we may um, give priority to one conceptualization. In another context, we give priority to another conceptualization. And I, I think that is not a phenomenally helpful guide. I think that leaves people to try to decide for themselves. And, and in my experience, people are going to um, default to what is easier uh, and what is going to make them feel like they have as much access as they need. And, um, <clears throat> and that worries me uh, because I think that helps to spread a lot of this proof texting and a lot of these rather simplistic unidimensional uh, approaches to scripture. I think we, uh, there was a, a series published a while ago, uh, James Faulkner, uh, The Scriptures Made Harder. Have you seen these, uh, these books? I've heard of them, yeah. Uh, when I was at BYU, I, I interviewed um, James Faulkner for the, a religious study center magazine, but I thought it was great because all, all these books did was say, here are these stories, here are some difficult questions to ask yourself about them, and it forces you to move outside of what's comfortable and what's easy for you. Um, and so one of the things I always talk about when, when I go present or talk to members of the church and they say, what's the best way to read the scriptures? I say, well, the first thing you need to do is decide why you are approaching the scriptures. Uh, are you just wanting to feel the spirit? You just want to commune with deity? Um, does, it doesn't really matter how you read the scriptures. I think, uh, if you're just doing your 15 minutes, your one chapter, do making sure you get some reading in every day. Um, I don't know that it matters if you want to learn something, if you're, uh, what questions do you have? What are you going to ask the text? The, the better questions you bring to the text, the better answers you're going to get out of it. Um, and so 
I try to help them think about what are your purposes for reading the scriptures. This is, um, I, I, there's a video that's stuck in my head for some reason of Zach Braff talking about how one time he was in a gym and Arnold Schwarzenegger showed up and he went over or Arnold Schwarzenegger came up to him and was like, what's the goals of your workout? And and that's, that's the first question. A lot of professionals ask people who teach people who train people who guide. That's one of the first questions that they will ask. What are your goals? What do you want to get out of this? And then you can customize the approach in order to maximize um, those goals. And I think we need to do the same with the, with the scriptures. Um, But it is difficult. It's long-term. You don't see immediate results. Sometimes you don't get the answers you want. Uh, and sometimes it, it makes things harder. Um, but I think, you know, if we're going to, if we think of, of, uh, of the scriptures as part of this wrestle before the Lord that uh, readers of the Book of Mormon are familiar with, why wouldn't it be difficult? Mm. Why would it be simple and right there given to you on a silver platter? Um, so, yeah, I've got strong feelings about that. So. Yeah. I think it's important to name like what hat you're wearing because there is the sense in which um, I can say something about the Bible and I have on my hat of right now I'm doing historical critical work where I'm trying to be evidence driven to see what this text originally meant to the community who produced it. And that's one question you can ask. There can also be very different questions about likening the scriptures unto yourselves, which is a very different goal than the academic goal. Mm-hmm. There are cases where I will interpret the Bible and I, I know that this isn't what that text meant, but this is what it means to me today in this imaginative queer reading that I'm likening the text of the scripture unto myself. And I need to be clear as to which one of those I'm doing mm-hmm. because I do both of them. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I try to be clear about that. I think it's in, in context, it's it's pretty clear. But going yeah. back to the issue around uh, Latter Day believing Latter Day Saints, I think we've been enculturated with a fear of worldly wisdom or the philosophies of men. And people can't see that I'm doing these air quotes. Uh, <laughs> I can hear the air quotes, Derek. People can hear yes, the air people quotes. Can hear the air quotes. But yes. <laughs> and I think there's this um, isolationist. Uh, mistrust of outsiders mistrust of scholarship like i i don't i don't need no book learning i can just read the scriptures and yeah and uh but i think we shouldn't i don't obviously i'm biased on this but i don't think we should be afraid of scholarship and i think it's actually a great christian sacrifice of faith to say you know what i'm going to go ahead and just do the scholarship the best i can with the tools that i have and glorify god with that and my uh sort of evidence for this comes from of course dnc 88 118 where it says seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom Uh, and the best books at that time weren't published by deseret book we know deseret book has problems right and (laughs) and uh there was no deseret book and there were no latter-day saint books at that time other than the book of mormon you have some periodicals the evening and morning star Um, we didn't even have the doctrine and covenants yet uh, it, it published. So when it says seek out of the best books, it means non LDS books. It means the latest scholarship. And Joseph did that in his life. He tried to learn Hebrew. Um, he tried to learn some Greek too. He tried to be in dialogue with the, the best commentaries of the day, like Adam Clark's commentary on the, who was non LDS. Right. And, and then it says, seek learning even by study 
and also by faith. So the study part comes first and the faith is added on as an additional, well, that's just an add on. So you study it out in your mind and then you, then you include the faith. So I think scholars like Latter-day Saints should have the most justification for being real academic scholars. Um, We also, according to the 13th article of faith, we believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and all that. But I think the honest and the true and the virtuous means we can't artificially ignore the evidence and just be deceptive about it. We need to face the evidence. We need to face the critical thinking skills. It may be tough. It may lead to some surprises, but we believe in a God of surprises, or at least I do. And then (laughs) if you look at the end of the 13th article of faith, it says, if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. I think there's a lot of Latter-day Saints who don't want to seek. They don't want to figure out. And um, I don't know what all the, the cultural or historical baggage is behind that lack of seeking, but I absolutely think that uh, looking at critical studies of the scriptures, it's going to be difficult sometimes, and we're going to get surprised at some of the results of that. And we also have to hold intention that the results of critical scholarship are always, um, uh, they're never final. It's kind of like our revelation in the church is never final. Academic consensus is never actually final. Scientific mm-hmm. consensus is never actually final if it's truly evidence driven. So we have yeah. to hold that with a little bit of humility as well. People say that looking at the scriptures with the critical lens is unfaithful, but I think the most faithful thing we can do is ask good questions and go wherever the evidence leads because you're trusting the system. You're trusting God. You're trusting that all truth is circumscribed into one whole and you're not afraid. I think it's, does that make sense that it's, that I think it's the more faithful to say, Hey, you know, we're just going to go with the evidence and trust that it, it, that, that it, that God can hold this. What do you think? I think it's the most faithful thing the, that displays the most trust is to say, you know what? I'm just going to go with the evidence and trust that all truth is circumscribed into one whole and not be afraid. Yeah. And I, I think that is a, a pure manifestation of the notion that we have to take the step into the dark and let the path be illuminated uh, because if we are saying, well, I'm, I'm safer over here, I'm just going to take little baby steps over in this direction and not move in this other direction because I could fall off a cliff or something. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's a different, uh, that's a different concept of faith, uh, than, than the one I have. Uh, and at the same time, <clears throat> one of the, when I was at the university of Oxford, I was at the Oxford center for Hebrew and Jewish studies. Uh, and I had dinners on a number of occasions with, uh, the other scholars who were there in residence or who were there for, uh, there was a big six month seminar going on and they kept kosher, which was a new experience for me. One day there were uh, chicken nuggets showing up and I was like, wow. And I was like, wow, these are so great. I didn't know y'all that we could do chicken nuggets here. And they were like, oh yeah, it's, uh, it's corn. Um, I was like, what is that? Oh, it's this uh, non-meat uh, thing made out of mushrooms. <laughs> I can't stand <laughs> mushrooms. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so that, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is we had, I love the conversations that I had around the dinner table with all these other scholars of Hebrew and Jewish studies. Um, most of them were Jewish. And some of them had had some experience with, with Latter-day Saints in the past. 
And they, on a couple of different occasions, asked me, Latter-day Saints seem so concerned all the time with proving things are true. They seem kind of stuck on that same note over and over again. And they don't seem to be moving the community forward, finding new insights, growing um, in their approaches to the scriptures and to uh, their experiences as a community. And that was the first time it struck me how kind of, yeah, stuck on a single note we are because we spend so much time trying to defend things to ourselves, really, not to anybody else. It's primarily to ourselves that we really don't spend any time learning new things. Um, and I think that keeps our growth limited. And I, from that point on, I have tried to think hard about why I am doing the research that I'm doing. Is this because I'm trying to prove something to myself or is this because I want to go out and I want to find new insights? I want to find, I want to answer questions that haven't been answered before. I want to uncover things that haven't been uncovered before. And if I'm going to do that, I can't be afraid that I might run into something that somebody else is going to find troubling or that I might find troubling. Um, <clears throat> and so I think we do ourselves a disservice when the overarching, the governing framework of everything that we do is proving to ourselves that it's true. Um, and that's probably the most, <laughs> the closest I'll ever get to talking about my personal beliefs uh, in, in public. But, um, but yeah, I don't think we can be worried about that. That just stunts our growth. That just keeps us um, stuck on that same note. The, the record keeps skipping um, if that's all we're doing. Yeah. And, and part of it is um, I didn't grow up as a Latter-day Saint, so I don't have all the same vulnerabilities or fears or worries that people exactly. who were raised with a particular narrative do. And for me, I'm, I'm comfortable with the fact that there are human fingerprints all over the scriptures. And not only am I comfortable with that, I actually think those human fingerprints increase the value and authenticity of the text. And there's going to be some people that, that want everything to be dictated from God and no human, which isn't even how Joseph talked about the process of revelation or inscripturation of, of his ideas. Yeah. But these human fingerprints are going to be a little bit challenging for people. And it's not like this is the product of the Enlightenment. People in the ancient world knew that there were human fingerprints all over the scriptures. Mm -hmm. It's, I think, a it's a product of the fundamentalism that was a reaction to modernism, that you have this artificial view of the scriptures, that mm -hmm. it doesn't have human fingerprints, and it's... Uh, whatever it is. And I think this gets really tricky because I think Latter-day Saints could admit human fingerprints all over the Bible. But when you say, look, there's human fingerprints all over the Book of Mormon, the Book of Abraham, the Book of Moses, the Joseph Smith translation, we can actually mm -hmm. see what Joseph was thinking during the production of these texts. When you look at it with these critical thinking skills, mm -hmm. comparing these texts to other 19th century texts, we realize, oh, this, this could be what's going on here. And people might be afraid of that conversation. And I don't think we should be afraid of that conversation. But I think that strikes to the heart of some of people's identities. And that's mm -hmm. what makes the, the conversation um, challenging. But I would just love people to be a little bit more relaxed and say, hey, look, God's got us. We're, 
we're, we're God's covenant people. We can handle the conversation. We can handle this. We may have to shift some of the things that we thought, but I think recognizing that, that, um, and even the most uh, traditional scholars should be able to admit that the book of Mormon, the book of Abraham and the uh, book of Moses and the rest of the JST are cultural translations. They are culturally translated to a 19th century audience. So you have to get that in there. We should look at the English book of Mormon, the English book of Abraham, the English JST as 19th century literature, if Mm -hmm. you're going to understand them correctly. And that's why historical critical scholarship has been defended because it gets you to like, what is the text actually doing and what is it saying? And I'm, now I'm interrupting Dan from saying something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to respond to the two things you said. Um, First, this, this notion that finding the human fingerprints is more meaningful. Um, One of the things that we're doing in, when we approach the scriptural text as a, a community for whom it is authoritative is we're constantly renegotiating our relationship to the past based on what our, our circumstances, our needs, our goals in the present are. And one of the ways that we do that, one of the things that we do is assert some kind of ideological uh, relationship to these folks in the past. We're part of the same narrative. That's what makes it meaningful uh, for us. That's what helps these stories to inform our own experiences is to say we're part of the same narrative. And to find the fingerprints of these people, how can that not make it more real for you? I had, um, I had two experiences jump out to me again at Oxford. I had a great time at Oxford. I was in the Bodleian Library uh, doing a tour with somebody and they showed us a, a document. It was under glass, but they let me hold it. And this was a piece of text written by Moses Maimonides, signed by Moses Maimonides. I took a picture with my little crappy candy bar phone that I could afford there of Moses Maimonides' own signature. And it was such a powerful experience to look at this and think about his hand writing out this signature, this figure from Jewish history that looms so large in so much Jewish scholarship. And and that makes it so real. And then there's um, every time I've looked at clay uh, texts, tablets, I always look for fingerprints. So even literally what you're talking about, fingerprints, because you see a fingerprint on there and you can place that person's thumb or finger or whatever right there. You can imagine the person handling it. And that um, makes it so real. It makes those people so real, so present, at least in my mind, and I, and I imagine the minds of many others. And that makes the assertion of some kind of continuity, some kind of relationship, I think, so much more meaningful, so much more powerful to have experiences like that. So when you see those fingerprints in the text and you say, this person was trying to achieve this because they had this need or this crisis, or something that gets you so much closer to them instead of just saying these people are speaking directly and only to me. Um, I, I think that makes the text uh, I, less, you know, more amorphous, more difficult to get a grip on. So, so that I think is, um, yeah, that, that makes, when you brought up the fingerprints, that's, that's what I thought of. And now I forgot. Oh uh, yeah. The fact that these are products of human endeavors. I mean, even if you take 
you know, not an inerrant view of, of the Book of Mormon, but whatever your approach to the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon itself acknowledges that it has mistakes. Mm-hmm. That and, and the concern is not to say this book has no mistakes. The concern is to say, don't blame God. It's to say, blame men. These are the mistakes of men, not of God. And so the, the Book of Mormon itself takes an approach to understanding um, the integrity of the text that is totally alien to this modernist notion that in order to protect it, we have to insist that it cannot have mistakes, which, like you said, is just a reaction against uh, Enlightenment critique. Uh, and that's why the creation account has become such a battleground for so many people. Once you get into the 19th century, you get into evolution, you get into slavery, you get into uh, racism, and uh, the creation account is one of, you know, that's where a lot of this intersects, and it becomes all about protecting our, um, you know, the power structures that people have created uh, using precisely those texts and those ideas. And yeah, that's got to all come crumbling down. Yeah. And that's why looking at the history of the, the church is very important to see, well, what questions were we asking? What influences were we dealing with? Because most of the People might think that I'm some type of radical that's like wanting to make us un-Mormon. But I think what made us un-Mormon is when we stopped our like treasuring our own birthright and we sold it for this uh, mess of lentils that we got from the Protestants, like the Protestant questions around the origin of the world and the Protestant questions around race and slavery and the Protestant questions around um, the nature of the authority of the text. Like uh, we, um, yeah, we, we didn't do our own work on that. We just like, uh, you know, copied their answers answers and like, yeah, this is what we're going to do. And this is, I, I think even, uh, that gets behind what was going on with with Joseph Fielding Smith, I think, in many in many cases. And so I want to I want us to be more Mormon, actually. Although we're not supposed to use the word Mormon anymore, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think the uh, in the nineteenth century, not so much toward the end of the nineteenth century, but earlier in the nineteenth century, we were trying to distinguish ourselves. We were being radical in a lot of different ways. And then as we moved toward and into the 20th century, I think we wanted to be, we wanted to hitch our wagon so that we could enjoy some of the fruits of the work that (laughs) Protestantism and evangelicalism has has done. And even more so into the mid 20th century and late 20th century, Mm -hmm. I think we are, we are trying to, um, we're trying to enjoy what evangelicalism has created for themselves mm-hmm. in terms of structuring power and values mm-hmm. um, instead of trying to um, assert our distinctiveness uh, because we should be, we should have the most radical approach to scripture. I mean, I've, I've the, the video that I've made that has had the most views is talking about God having a wife, which for most Christians is just, you know, they just can't, it doesn't compute for them. And for Latter-day Saints, it's like, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't God have a wife? Um, and that's something. Well, I don't have a wife. I don't have a wife. There's a reason behind that, right? Yeah. 
and and that gets back to I think a lot of what Latter Day Saints have done. It's like, oh, let's just do a group project with the Protestants, and we're going to snooze and let them do all the work, and we're going to take some <laughs> of the credit, like, and then get the A. And but that doesn't lead to the quality product that we want. It's not um, authentic to the Latter Day Saint spirit of inquisitiveness, of Joseph asking questions, of us doing our own work, and and not. Um, not uh, looking to other churches for our for what we should have been doing doing the work ourselves, and I think on issues of gender and sexuality, Latter Day Saints have done zero original exegetical work on the uh, passages in the scriptures, uh, or at least the passages in the Bible that the uh, Protestants and Catholics have used against women or used against LGBT. I can't even think of of uh, uh, of, of of people have done that work um, to defend the, uh, the the received view on these issues. Mm-hmm. But once we do this work, um, we're able to to do more. And I think that gets back to something that we do on the podcast is, and this is one of our um, one of our particular areas of interest is looking at the scriptures from the standpoint of the marginalized and mm-hmm. finding. Uh, liberatory readings for women, people of color, LGBTQ folks, uh, disabled disabled folks, um, economically marginalized, all sorts of people who don't fit the picture perfect model of of what the uh, Latter Day Saint cultural ideal is. Yeah. And so, what would you say as a scholar? to Latter-day Saints who are trying to say, how can I read the scriptures more responsibly on these issues or issues of uh, responsible scholarship in general? Well, I think, <clears throat> I think uh, in light of the fact that we cannot hope to be 100% objective about things, that there are going to be readings that are irretrievable, that, uh, there's a degree to which everything is shining the text through the lens of our own experience and our own needs and things like that. I think we have to recognize that it is not an illegitimate use of the text to use it to inform one's own experiences. But if we're only using it to prop up or to defend existing power structures, the status quo, then we're just serving their interests. And some of the most powerful, I think, readings of the scriptures, the scriptures have come from groups that are challenging that, uh, from liberationist theology, from womanist theology, from queer, disabled theological approaches. Um, And to be responsible, I think we have to treat, if if a Latter-day Saint truly believes that everyone is a child of God, I think they need to allow everyone to have equal, equal access and an equal say in terms of what this can mean. Mm. Um, and so why, if, if we're trying to say that, you know, well, this reading is more common or popular, or it outnumbers another reading. Uh, well, if in the States, all that means is that that is the cis hetero white reading. Um, and so why should that have the privilege, the unearned privilege of uh, overruling all the others simply in virtue of outnumbering uh, all the others? Um, and it's not just so that everyone has a seat at the table. I think there's also the fact that we grow and progress and learn more 
the more we're thinking outside that tiny little box that we tend to to want to stay in. And so there are going to be readings that come from these uh, from minority groups and from um, intersectional readings of the scriptures that are going to make scholars realize, hey, there is something different to this. And um, and those readings, I hope, uh, will become mainstream in the future as we realize this is not just them doing their own identity politics. It's them contributing to the uh, to the mainstream, to the center table and showing that everybody has a say in this and everybody's say can mm. and should matter. Yeah, and this gets back to the issues around scholarship as well. And I think something that needs to be named is like who has the authority to interpret scripture? And I think within our cultural context, a lot of people will assume that it is the uh, prophets, seers, and revelators who have the capability of authoritatively telling us what the text means. Mm -hmm. um, And people will do this. For example, I'm going to look at Genesis on its own terms, and I'm going to look at it from the lens of the marginalized today. I'm not going to necessarily look at it through the lens of the book of Abraham or the book of Moses or what the correlated manual approved by the brethren says it says, I'm going to look at what it says. And I think a lot of Latter-day Saints, they're going to say, oh, I can just look at these other sources, Moses, Abraham, and the correlated material. And that will authoritatively tell me what the text means. And like that, you're, you're cheapening the, the joy of the journey of actually doing the detective work and engaging with the text. And I think this is where we've um, almost slipped into what our Roman Catholic friends have, uh, have done by saying, well, the Pope has the authority to infallibly define matters of faith and morals under certain circumstances. I'm like, we're not Catholics. We do not believe in the infallibility of our leaders, no matter what culturally we say. Um, that's not part of our, te- that's not part of our sources. That's not part of our doctrine anywhere. And so what would you say to people who are like, well, um, the manual says this, or this conference talk says this. And, and so why are you as a scholar who, do, who, 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 uh, is outside the received power and authority structure of the church? How, how, why should I believe you as to what the mm-hmm. text means? Well, I, <laughs> I have a, uh, a, a shortcut to talking. I, I consulted on the, the current manual. I traveled to Israel with the curriculum writers so that they could get experience on the ground of these places they were going to be writing about. And, and we talked about precisely this kind of stuff the entire time. What is this? What is the purpose of this manual? What does it mean? How are people going to be receiving it? How authoritatively should we write it? Um, and <clears throat> I think we, w- without trying to suggest that I can speak authoritatively about the way it is, um, I shared the opinion a number of times without really any objection that we should be allowed to hold a bunch of different readings in tension. Members should not be scared to say, well, I read it this way, you know, because I have an LGBTQ plus child, or I have a disabled husband, or I have lost um, a a spouse and, um, you know, now an older single person, or 
uh, I have a trans child or sister or brother or something like that. I, so I read this differently. Members should not be scared to do that, but so many members are scared to do that in, in that uh, setting where we formally come together to read scripture. And I think that just reinscribes the, uh, the status quo, the power structures. Um, and, and, that's a, and that's a problem. And that's something I advocate for when I'm in classes. I say, hey, let's hear it. Um, you know, this is a safe space. We don't need to be afraid that, you know, somebody's going to tell the bishop we have the wrong interpretation of, uh, of this uh, story. Because, like I said previously, there are these tensions in the way we're supposed to be approaching Scripture. Is it this constitution that only has one uh, authoritative reading, or is it this source of inspiration and revelation that is that we can personalize um, and that we can use to inform our own experiences and that are, is going to change from time to time? Um, and so I, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we get together and then pretend that we all agree that it means this one simple thing. Right. And, I, and that gets back to the question about uh, criticizing the brethren, right? This is a big conversation that we always have to have. And I think the, I don't know where to, where, what I'm trying to say on this, but in a world where the brethren don't treat me like a child of God, just to say that I'm a child of God is a criticism of the brethren. Right. There's no way that I can exist without criticism of the brethren if they deny my full divinity and humanity. It's just not possible. So when people say don't criticize the brethren, like I have no choice on this, just um, just saying. And part of the challenge is. In almost every justice system that I know, the accused have a right to speak in their defense. Mm -hmm. And if I speak in my own defense and say the truth about my people, that everything that we've been taught about my people is mistaken, somehow that's now a criticism and I'm not allowed to criticize the brethren. I am not allowed in this church the right to fully de defend myself. And I think that is, a, is a, a significant injustice that needs to be calculated into the conversation about whether we can or cannot criticize the brethren. I think it is very abusive. And that needs to be named for people with power over others to tell the people they have power over. You cannot criticize what I'm doing without checks and balances. You have tyranny and um, it's just abusive and unfair use of authority to prevent those authentic conversations from happening. Agreed. I, uh, I would like to see a lot more openness, a lot more, um, willingness to, to share ideas that uh, are, will make other people uncomfortable um, and that will challenge the, uh, the positions that have been asserted by the power structures. And uh, yeah, that's, that's going to be important to us moving through a lot of the discourse and the uh, things that are going on right now in our society. And I think the challenge for the brethren is they are trapped in a, a, 
a prison that's made of the cultural adoration of them. Like they have such expectations on them. They're probably not free to say publicly everything they think. Like they are held hostage by the system, not the same way I am, but it is a very real thing uh, to say they have weight on them. They have expectations on them. They have traditions that they need to uphold and they are on a pedestal. And the smaller your pedestal is, the more of a a prison it is. And so there's, there's senses in which I could even be a little more free than they are. Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't have the same um, status as royalty, right? Royalty, like I was reading a thing about the, the royal lives and all the rules that they have to follow and they, all the etiquette and all this other mess. I'm like, I don't want to live that life. They can't <laughs> eat what they want. They can't say what they want. They can't wear what they want. They can't take off. I just was re- realizing that they can't take off the jacket in public. Like if they're wearing uh, a suit jacket, they can't take it off because they have to look a certain way. I'm like, Oh, (laughs) by the time you get up to that level of royalty, it's you're trapped. Yeah, definitely an unenviable position. Um, Glad I'm not uh, in that position. (laughs) And it wasn't always this way in the 19th century. Apostles could openly disagree. Um, uh, people could could make their concerns known and there would be open conversations about these things. I'm not sure what happened, but within the past uh, half a century, we now artificially have, have changed the conversation to make it not possible to, to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Big time. I, but- I, I would like to ask more specifically, since we've already alluded to it several times, mm-hmm. um, when it comes to how the saints behave or how we learn or how we study the scriptures currently, is there anything you would like to see uh, or name specifically that you would like to change in how we currently uh, read the scriptures? Like this could be as specific as uh, our actual curriculum, how we uh, Mm -hmm. go to Sunday school, how we teach kids at seminary, anything of that sort that you would like to see us change on an institutional level that our readings of the sacred text, especially the Bible might be more responsible, uh, more life-giving and perhaps more uh, even, even faith promoting. Uh, And, you know, I'm using that term very, you know, Mm -hmm. loosely, you might people define that term differently, but uh, feel free to define it as you wish. um, You know, when you talk about it. I would love to see more of a concern for situating the texts, which whatever texts they are in their, uh, in their original environments, look for genre, try to think about, um, if not uh, authorial intent, at least most likely uh, rhetorical utility. What were these texts written for? Because when we tend to skip over that and just think, why are they important to us right now? But I think those questions can be more adequately, more competently addressed by first saying, here's what they were used for then. And then saying, you know, these are all the implications of this. Do any of these intersect with what we are trying to find or look for today, whether that's the DNC and whether we're looking at, uh, you know, we had this conference to decide whether or not we were going to publish the DNC, the book of commandments, because it wasn't perfect. And, you know, that's where DNC one comes from. 
And so I think understanding that helps us better understand DNC 138, this idea that all shall be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. The message there isn't the voice of my servants and my own voice are one and the same. That would totally undermine the entire point of why this revelation was received. The message is whether my whether it is fulfilled by mine own voice or whether it is fulfilled by the voice of my servants, it is fulfilled all the same. I think understanding the historical background. So if it's the DNC, well, try to reconstruct a, a potential background for uh, a Book of Mormon text. Try to reconstruct how a Book of Mormon text would have functioned in 1830. What rhetorical um, utility would ha- it have had? That was my uh, my paper on Second Nephi 25:23 was showing this fits within a literary trajectory and a rhetorical um, uh, environment. Uh, in the early 19th century. And so I think that's the best we should start from there when we read the text. When we're looking at the Bible, try to understand how these things worked in ancient Israel and Judah. Or, um, you know, think about the fact that this text was being written in Babylon, uh, where you're surrounded by all these other people, and you are miles and miles away from the country where you still think uh, where God is located. And you don't have access to God's presence anymore. So if we can if we can try to situate the text within the environments in which they were produced, I think that is a much firmer foundation for then saying, okay, now in my own situation, as for me, a cis hetero white male, you know, what am I doing with this for someone who is um, disabled? or another person who uh, is, uh, you know, a, a black woman, uh, a black trans woman, or something like that, approaching one of these texts. Uh, if they have that foundation, then how does that help them inform their own experiences in the situations that they're in? There are so many different ways to approach it and lenses that we can apply that we don't think about that I think could just create a much more engaging, a much more inclusive, a much more productive uh, uh, discourse. Um, But we tend to just think about what does this mean to me right now and skip over uh, everything that we should be thinking about to bring us to that point. I'm curious about the relationship between scholarship and missionary work, Hmm. Uh, because I think that we, we don't really have this conversation much. But I'm drawing upon the parable of the soils to say, well, if you spring up real fast but don't have any root, well, you're going to wither away very quickly. And I think the missionary world is probably the most distilled, highly correlated um, uh, piece of it because what you're getting is uh, what's in the manuals. You're getting the uh, whatever is – you know, that that's kind of uh, what you're getting out in the field. If, if you're relying on these missionaries to teach you, you don't get the whole nuance of the the entire community's conversation on this. But I really think that uh, there should be room for scholarship to inform our missionary work. Um, and in part, this this goes back to translation. When we translate the Bible, when we translate the manuals into the languages other than English, that's also uh, a missionary endeavor. So what do you think about this and how can we 
use scholarship to do responsible um, missionary work? Uh, there, there's an argument to make that that responsible missionary work is a bit of a misnomer. <laughs> that it is that it is colonialism. That, um, that it is imperialism, even if it's just cultural imperialism. Um, and so, there's a there's a great book by a man named Laman Sana called Translating the Message: the 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 missionary impact on culture. I think is the subtitle but it discusses Bible translation and uses Africa and the Philippines as two case studies for how um, Bible translation in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries were entangled with imperialism. And, and it's just a fascinating discussion. But um, if we accept that there is a way to responsibly incorporate scholarship and missionary work, I would like to think it has to do with localization with helping missionaries understand better the context that they are in, the history, how people approach things. If a missionary in Central America is aware of liberation theology and how it has structured the way that things are in South America and the relationships that people have with the church and with the government, I think it would help them to be able to relate a lot better, empathize a lot better. Uh, I think if we use missionaries from those cultures instead of, uh, you know, and, there, and there's a sourcing issue right now where <laughs> the vast majority of missionaries are, are coming from uh, uh, the Intermountain West. Um, but if we can use more local missionaries, I think that can also, uh, you know, we, they have a head start in understanding things uh, a little better. Missionaries now have seems they have a lot of access to social media because <laughs> I keep getting friend requests from missionaries um, on, on Facebook. And so I, I would hope that they are able to access some kinds of, of scholarship, but you know, I'm not the one who makes those decisions. And I know that the folks who are making those decisions have a number of different priorities on their plate that someone sitting in my chair does not have. Um, and I don't envy the person saddled with, with the responsibilities that they do have. But I would like to see, yeah, I would love to see uh, missionaries given an opportunity to better understand the cultures that they're in, because there's a de degree of that. Uh, I, I have a friend who served in Armenia who visited um, the Armenian church a lot, did a lot of research on the history of the Armenian church, just kind of incidentally. Um, but I think that made him a much better missionary. Uh, I tried to attend the churches that were around me when I was serving as a missionary in Uruguay. I went to some Pentecostal churches. I went to a Catholic mass once. Um, and I don't know if I was technically supposed to be doing that. Uh, I went to a, a kingdom hall one time, attended a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, wow. Meeting. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I was supposed to or allowed to be doing that, but I, I, was teaching these people, I thought. I was meeting with them. I was trying to develop what we call relationships of trust with <laughs> them. And I felt the only sincere, genuine way to do that would be to um, try to trust them, understand them, help them grow to trust me because I am being sincere and not because I'm trying to manipulate them. 
And so I, uh, I tried to do that. I don't know if that was approved. I don't know if that's correlated activity, but I would love to see missionaries being able to do that um, more. But yeah, that's unfortunate. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, that's well above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> Big time. Well, okay then. Um, we're at about a minute left on this Zoom and we're about 10 minutes over our uh, allotted mark for the time being. <laughs> we'll probably have to uh, do a part two at some point because I clearly, I mean, I didn't underestimate how much time we could spend here today. But uh, <laughs> even still... I do want to make sure that the uh, episode is digestible. So let me just put a cap on things for the time being. And thank you, Dr. Daniel McClellan, for joining us today. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, this was such a pleasure. I, I learned so much just by listening. Can you drop your social media handles? Well, actually, we're less than a minute. I'm just going to put those in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, Daniel, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And uh, we hope that we'll get to have this conversation again about some responsible biblical scholarship and see more of your work on TikTok. Yeah, absolutely. I hope to as well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation and the questions and the insight. And, uh, and hopefully, uh, yeah, we can come back and do this again.